One of the great things about being a podcaster is you get an opportunity to meet with and have amazing conversations with not just your guests, but sometimes with other podcasters. Recently, I had the opportunity to jump onto the All Bodies Outside podcast. And I got to say, this was one of the most fun episodes I've ever recorded. Uh, it was a really engaging conversation with Dr. Brian Peterson. Uh, I think Brian is doing phenomenal work with the podcast and is really getting some awesome awareness out to his community about what does it take to get outside, to be outside, and to spend time in nature. You see, for someone like myself who grew up in Utah and the mountains were in my backyard, it was an easy answer. I just went out and went for hikes and I went out uh, on my mountain bike and I picked up rock climbing. I did so many different things outside. It was normal. It was natural. But in many parts of our country and in many parts of the world, that's not the case. Not everyone feels included. Not what everyone feels feels like they have access to nature. And frankly, not everyone feels like they know even what to do when they go out into nature, why getting in nature is so beneficial for them. So this conversation with Brian was, uh, as I said before, one of my favorite conversations because we got to talk about something that I absolutely love doing, and that's getting outside. How does nature how does our time in nature help us to evolve as individuals? So with that, we are re-releasing my episode with the All Bodies Outside podcast. I would encourage you to go follow the podcast, listen to some of the fascinating conversations that Brian is having with uh, many experts across the country, and uh, give them a like, give them a, uh, a rating. And hey, if you're doing that, do me a favor, will you? Uh, jump on, give us a rating, uh, rating and review, help the Evolve podcast to continue to grow. In fact, if you give us a rating and a review, I will absolutely love you forever because every rating, every review that you give us helps us to get greater reach on this platform. So if you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, jump on, give us a rating, give us a review, and that will allow us to get more reach and in touch with more amazing guests that we can share great content about how to evolve into your highest self. And now on to the episode. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast. Evolve your body, evolve your mind, evolve your soul, and evolve your tribe. And now it's time to disrupt. Hello, fabulous listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Old Bodies Outside. This is your host, Brian Peterson. This episode is an exciting one because Old Bodies Outside is doing a collaboration with the Evolve podcast, which is hosted by this episode's guest, Steve Cutler. The mission of the Evolve podcast is to empower people to disrupt their lives, to evolve their body, evolve their mind, evolve their soul, and to evolve their tribe. The Evolve podcast shares timeless wisdom by interviewing the best experts in the fields of health, fitness, mental well-being, and soul development to help people disrupt and evolve into their highest self. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you on Old Bodies Outside, and thanks for starting this collaboration between the two podcasts. 
Yeah, you bet. Uh, so great to be here. Uh, your your podcast popped up on my uh, feed one day, and uh, I just fell in love. And I thought, what a cool message that you're putting out there. And you know, I think that your message uh, is important for our listeners. And so, I thought, let's uh, let's see if we can do some uh, collaboration together. So, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed checking into your podcast as well. And that really means something to me that you found my podcast since uh, it's a, it's a very new podcast. We started uh, at the start of December and it's just been a lot of fun. Every time I get to connect with a guest, um, hear their unique stories and the nuances of human experience. Um, it's, it's always an enjoyable process. So I really uh, am happy that you're supporting old buys outside and kind of tuning into it here and there. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, so let's hear a little bit about you first before we get into your podcast. And um, so I know that you live out in Utah. Um, I think we both happen to do some uh, university time at the University of Utah, but taking it back right. before the podcast, what were you up to in your professional world? Well, so I've, I've spent the better part of uh, the last two decades or so in the health and fitness space. And so I've spent time as a coach, a personal trainer, uh, exercise testing specialist. I've worked as an adjunct professor uh, teaching exercise uh, programming and exercise physiology, um, managing health clubs. And then, you know, about, uh, 15 years ago, I shifted primarily into the business side of the health and fitness area and, uh, spent the better part of a decade and a half traveling the country and doing leadership coaching and training for entities and organizations, uh, digging into helping people to evolve and become their best self, uh, relative to their leadership. Uh, and then along the way, still continuing with some of my uh, personal coaching clients. And so um, I currently, uh, you know, host the Evolve podcast and run Evolve, which is primarily a coaching, consulting and speaking business. And we work with people from all walks of life all over the country, uh, really all over the world uh, to help them to become their highest version of themselves. And so uh, really fortunate to have had several great mentors along the way and to have uh, really tapped into not only the health and fitness uh, space, but, uh, you know, find some amazing people that have guided me along the way in business, in health and wellness. And so it's it's been a wild ride. Yeah, well, that, that was that's a, quite an explanation. You got me thinking about um the importance of mentors in life and, you know, approaching that mentoring relationship with humility and being able to take those critiques and build on them and evolve yourself. Right. Um, but I wanted to hear about what got you started with the health and fitness space. Well, so health and fitness has always been something I've been interested in as a kid. You know, I grew up here in the mountains of Utah and from my backyard, I could hop on my little BMX bike as a kid and ride about two blocks up the hill, and I'm right there in the mountains. You know, I, I, can, uh, I can mountain bike, we could go climb, we could uh, water skiing, snow skiing, I mean, you name it. And so I, I just love that. I fell in love with it. And initially, when I went to the University of Utah, I had started to study art because I'm an artist and thought that that might be a good way to go. Uh, always been fascinated with psychology, and so I had a dual major in art and psychology. And then one day decided that... Uh, I just, I didn't want to sit in a room and listen to people talk about their problems all day. And I didn't want to sit in a room painting all day. Uh, those two things seemed very 
lonely to me. And so I said to myself, what could I do where I could implement psychology, art, and movement? And that's where the health and fitness space came in. And so I started training and coaching people and got the opportunity to work with everybody from high school, collegiate, Olympic professional athletes to bodybuilders, fitness competitors, to just general population. And I essentially became the last trainer that you would come to. So I um, wasn't the guy that people would come to at first, but when there was a problem that they couldn't get fixed, uh, a shoulder that wasn't rehabbing appropriately, or they couldn't get their power back after some sort of injury or uh, knee surgery, then they would come and see me and I would help them to fix the problem and move forward. Yeah, well, what a great place to start as being you know, the coach that no one wanted to go to. I feel like that's honestly um, an opportunity in itself to really get to know athletes, the heterogeneity amongst athletes, um, and maybe yeah. apply some arts of coaching. Like, you know, I, I really like that you said that, you know, you brought art to uh, the fitness space. And that's something I've, I've actually thought a lot about with um, how I go about adventuring and say, I'm a big runner. So pursuing running and, um, right. you know, each run to me is a creative action. And so there's a creativity of where do I want to go? And one of the things that I really loved a lot about living in Utah was the opportunities to go off trail. Um, and so that's where like, I almost felt like I had a personal boost in the creativity process of my run. And so, okay, running down a trail, it might tell me where to go. And that might be exactly what I want for the day. And that's what might mm -hmm. be exactly what my body needs for the day. And that's perfect. Other days though, I'm like, oh, I want to go, you know, explore this, explore that. And there's an extra level of gratification for me when I'm able to do that. Uh, but I wanted to hear about how you brought art into your work as a coach. Well, I think much like you, I, I bring it in uh, in terms of helping people to understand uh, the deeper part of who they are and moving from the place where they currently are to where they want to be. So for instance, I was doing a consultation the other day with a group that uh, one of the gentlemen that asked me, well, how do we get started? I said, well, we get started by understanding what your goal, what your objective is. Where do you want to get to? How you train yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually is going to be relative to where you want to get to. And so we start with your goal and then we backtrack and say, where are you at right now? Not where do you want to be, but where are you currently at? And from there, there's a beautifully artistic process that we can go through to help you get to your particular goal. Um, you know, I think the health and fitness industry for, uh, good or bad has had several dogmas that have just been constantly put out there. And so people feel like if they're outside of the health and fitness industry, that they have to join, uh, the church of the gym, or they have to join the church of clean eating in order to get into uh, great shape. And that's just not the case. There are so many artful ways to get done what you want to get done. And what I found, especially living where I live, if, if my clients are locally, uh, I'll get a lot of them outside to start moving because there is no better way to evolve your body, mind, and soul than to get out in nature. Now, you want to evolve your tribe, take somebody with you, and you're hitting all four of those things. And so that becomes what I call a big bang exercise. A big bang exercise is where you get more than one benefit from it. And so if you can create a connection with other people out on the trail, cardiovascular agility, you're getting a little bit of strength as you're hiking up that, that mountain. Um, you've got total evolution happening in the mountains. So that's, uh, I, I would say that's part of it. And then the other part of it is I put the art into looking at the human body 
similar to what maybe our Renaissance forebearers did. The human body to our Renaissance forebearers, they were, uh, it was a beautiful thing. They uh, admired the uh, the beauty and the symmetry, you know, uh, Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man, uh, for instance. There's beauty in the symmetry and the movement, and I believe that movement should be beautiful. I think that one of the things that makes us old is that we don't take care of all of the different aspects of our movement, and so we don't move in a beautiful way. And so I think that a body that has great symmetry, functionality, mobility, that allows you to create the most beautiful life that you can. So I, you know, I was talking to a client the other day about this and she said, as I have lost body fat, become stronger, become more symmetrical, become more balanced. One day something just hit me as I pulled my pants on and I realized that I could button them without pain. I became more present. I wasn't thinking about myself and how uncomfortable I am when I was interacting with my child. And I just interacted with my child and I said, let's go run. Let's go play, buddy. Let's go do this. And she says the day went by and I realized how that beautiful body that I've created, that beautiful movement has now allowed me to be artistically beautiful and present for my son. So that's, I guess, the cornerstone of how I've applied the art to it. Yeah, Steve, that was a wonderful explanation. I like that you hit on all the pillars of your mission with, uh, you know, disrupting the life, but also evolving your body, evolving your mind, evolving your soul, evolving your tribe. And it really got me thinking about uh, my my personal evolution. And mm. um, I was going to connect that back to your, you mentioned a little bit about uh, your enjoyment of psychology earlier. And yeah, that has yeah. been something that is really on the forefront of my mind uh, more and more. And I think that serendipitously actually happened when I went back to graduate school. And I had been out of... Um, university life for about 10 years and I was really into conservation but conservation is a, a really big umbrella there's a lot of different ways to go about conservation there's right. uh, maybe social psychology approaches to conservation there's maybe put some land aside if there's an endangered species and I got into a conservation program and little did I know it was actually using social psychology approaches to boost conservation ethic and so I got to start learning about some of these different approaches and um, as you're talking about evolving, I was thinking about my personal psychology and um, thinking about some things, some ways that I have evolved psychologically, um, becoming more calm of a person, um, not judging people, trying to understand people, trying to understand their histories, trying to understand their human experiences and their nuances that are part of those experiences. Um, and I think that psychology too, is it's so, so fascinating. It's something that I'm extremely fascinated with and it's something that gets examined a lot on this podcast on old bodies outside podcast and that is that um, with old bodies podcast we often talk about um, outdoor recreation participation getting outside and recreating and um, for different populations there might be some social barriers related to that and you know dealing with those social barriers the perceptions of those social barriers um, how that's internalized um, and you know ways to navigate that that's something that's a big part of my podcast and that's that psychology right there um, and so I think that's, you know, in terms of disrupting your life and living to the best person that you can be, um, that psychological component is, is right there with all your other components that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah it's a great point. And I think that, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I love what you do, because I think that as people have access and they have the ability to get outside, they still need to feel comfortable doing it. They still, it still needs to feel like a safe space that they can be. And also that they have people around them that are supportive of getting outside. 
Um, I mean, there are several studies that have shown just purely from a psychological standpoint that the calming effective nature can uh, mitigate so many negative effects of the psychological uh, challenges that we all deal with. You know, I, uh, about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I came to an awareness after my daughter had come to me and said, Hey, um, you know, I, I saw the psychologist, they ran the tests and she's pretty confident that I've got ADHD. So I started studying about this and reading about it. And just little by little, I thought, Oh my gosh, I think you got that for me, kiddo. So I went and saw a psychologist, went through the battery of tests, had a conversation. Um, and the psychologist said, yeah, you definitely have ADHD. What I've noticed with, uh, myself and other people who have neurodivergent brains is nature is calming. Nature allows us to mitigate the negatives of ADHD and maximize the superpower of it. You know, ADHD is a condition of the brain that uh, allows you to focus and bounce between things very quickly, which is amazing until it's not. And nature allows you to take in so many things, but not be overwhelmed by it. And so, uh, it, that, as you talked about, the access, the comfort piece, the getting rid of the stigmas, it's so important for people to feel like that they have the ability they have the freedom to get outside and uh, and and go do what they want to do, and I think there's uh, so much benefit or so many benefits uh, psychologically to it. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think that it, it, there are so many benefits to it, and so that kind of got me thinking about your coaching. And before I, I ask my question, I kind of want to give a little bit of background of where I'm at with uh, my personal fitness. I, I'm a person that loves working out, and I try to do it about five mm -hmm. to seven times a week. Um, and it, it's really just a give or take process. Um, at the minimum, I try to work out four times a week. Um, I prefer to work out every day, though, just because I love the action of working out. Um, I love, um, I've, I've just always been a part of athletics and I love getting after it. But one of the things that I struggle with through the winter time is working out outside. And so during the summertime, yeah. I have a, a nice healthy balance between gym workouts and going outside and working out outside. During the winter time, though, um, Kansas winter is, it's, it's just windy and cold and the wind is what gets me. It's not necessarily the cold, it's the wind. And so if it's windy out, um, you know, a 20 mile power, uh, constant wind, it's like, I'm going to be inside in the gym. And I think it was about two weeks ago, me and my wife, we went and did a 5am workout at the gym and I left and I said, you know, I had a good workout today, but I am missing working out outside. Like I feel disconnected from nature. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with your coaching, do you strive to try to balance certain types of workouts, whether that's gym workouts and outdoor workouts? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I do that myself. It, and I'm smiling because I feel the same way. Uh, as you know, Utah winters are not uh, the same, but this winter has been crazy. I mean, we are record level snow levels. Uh, there's wind more days than not nowadays. Uh, and so this has been a particularly difficult winter for me because I love being outside, even in the cold, I love being outside. Um, I've found that, uh, the majority of people's workouts, movement programs are much, much better. If you can get some sort of daily movement outside. And even if you're just going for a walk around the block, I don't care. If you can get to the park, you can go on a trail run, you can go hike, you can go bike, something like that more often than not, then you're, you're going to uh, be better off. 
Now, the majority of the strength training, can, uh, strength conditioning type of training that I do uh, with people or that I recommend that they do is either in a gym or in their home with the proper equipment. But if they have equipment that carries and they can take it to a park and they can do it at the park, I would much rather, uh, you know, minus those 90, 100 degree days outside uh, where you've got the sun blaring down on you. I, I would love for people to get outside and, and do their exercise outside as well. Uh, you just get so many benefits to it. So I think any great movement plan should have the foundation of it uh, as an outside movement plan. And that could be that, again, you're just walking. Walking is one of the most underrated exercises in the world. And I say walking, I, you know, we can add hiking into it, you know, strolling through the woods. It is the most underrated thing in the world. But it is so powerful to change the body, change the mind. And I think that if you're doing that outside, uh, my experience is people just become more calm. They find a better evolution of their mind. You know, one of the things that people don't understand is that walking, you, we, we have uh, our typical response, right? You've got the two sides of the uh, nervous system. Essentially, you've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic portions of the nervous system. And when we're stressed, we're uh, really tapping into the sympathetic part of the nervous system. And when we're going into the rest and relax, uh, we're tapping into the parasympathetic. Well, our fight, flight, or freeze response, we start to go for a walk and it activates the flea response. But here's the thing. It actually, because it's a very small input and we're going in this gentle walk out in nature it starts to tap into the parasympathetic. And so if someone is stressed, the best thing to do is go for a walk because that's your flea response. But you're not running from your problem. You're just creating a pause. And the longer you walk, the more you're going to regulate, the more you're going to tap in to the parasympathetic side of the nervous system and calm you down. And so as I was teaching a client today, you know, one of the biggest things to get people moving and keep people moving through life is to change your relationship to pain. When you have pain in life, let's say that you're stressed. And so there's this acute pain. Don't go directly at the pain, hit it from an obtuse angle, go for a walk, right? Flee from that pain for just a minute because you need your nervous system to calm down. And then once you've done that, then you can come back and address the pain Correct, you know, uh, uh, directly. So if I have had a difficult conversation with somebody at work and maybe they overstepped a boundary that I'm not okay with, then I go for a walk. So I address the pain from a different angle and I address it by moving forward. I'm not shoving sugar into my mouth or going overly caffeinated or slamming back uh, a couple of beers. I'm doing something that's going to be health promoting. Then I come back in a more calm, relaxed state and I can sit down and say, hey, I want to talk about the conversation that we had. And there were a couple of things that were uh, uncomfortable for me. And I want to make sure that we uh, reset some boundaries so that as we move forward, we can do so in a professional way. And those types of conversations can be had in a professional setting once we've done, once we've utilized outdoors as a medicine right? Out, outdoor and movement becomes the way to calm us down and then to evolve into a more compassionate, more caring, and quite frankly, more intelligent human being. Yeah. And I think that just summarizes, you know, your kind of evolution of recognizing that with yourself and, you know, taking that stress and approaching it from that obtuse angle. Um, and walking has so much to it. I, I, 
I really see a lot of the benefits of everything you just said. And it really got me thinking about a book. And I don't know, this is going to put you on the spot, but have you heard of a book called The Nature Fix by Florence Williams? Oh, I haven't, but it sounds cool. Yeah, it was. Um, so I'll repeat that title, The Nature Fix. Um, the author is okay. Florence Williams. And it was sold for a while in REI. It still might be sold in REI. Oh, but okay. It um, went through. She, I think, has a bit of journalism background with Outside Magazine. And mm. she went through and did a lot of um, interviews with psychologists to understand the benefits of being in nature and then went and tested those. Um, herself or with friends or family or with others or whatever to see if she would feel those benefits and whatnot. And um, it was, I mean, just benefit after benefit was validated through her personal testing. Yeah. And it, was, it was a really cool wow. journey to, to read through the book. Um, I actually need to reread it. I probably read it like about, ooh, probably 2015, 2016. So it's been a little while, but it was very impactful. Okay. I remember it very well. And um, nature is something that is very, very meaningful to me. And it's something that I examine a lot with living in Kansas. And so a little unknown fact about Kansas versus a very difference with Utah is that in Kansas, we are 98, 98% private land. Um, oh, and wow. so okay. we don't have a lot wow. of public lands and you know, that is because we're an ag state. And so I'll actually, okay. I had a, um, an undergrad class at Kansas State University and I asked them, um, and I had them do it in writing, you know, what's they're, they're part of a program called park management and conservation. It's all about managing public spaces, parks and protected areas mm. that are public spaces, public lands. And so I, I asked them in the kind of a short little essay to respond to, you know, how do they feel about Kansas being 98%? private land. And surprisingly, a lot of them are like, well, you know, we're an ag state. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is our heritage. Um, we really enjoy it a lot. But I, I don't, I'm not born in Kansas. I was born in California. I've never, I moved here in June of 2020. But before that, I lived in California, I lived in Colorado, I lived in Utah, I lived in South Carolina and all places that have a lot of public lands. And I moved here. And now I have, I do have a little bit of public land near me. It's a, it's a small park with two miles of trails and it's uh, okay. some loop trails. And mm. it's a park that I hold very sacred in my life because that's where I yeah. go, whether yeah. it's to walk my dogs. I've had picnics out there with my wife. Um, I go running out there and I, I love this place so much that I'm, I'm on the board of this park now. Um, <laughs> very cool. <laughs> it's a nonprofit <laughs> board, awesome. but I examine my relationship with nature because I, I, I struggle with having access to a variety of different nature settings. And so I try to make mm. the best of it. You know, I got this one little park and that's it. And um, I've thought about going up to some of these larger farmlands and the owners and saying, hey, do you mind if I kind of use like a little plot of this land at 530 in the morning to wander around and walk or whatever? Um, I haven't gotten to that point, but um, I'm always examining my relationship with nature. Where's my access to it? Mm. Do I need, how much nature do I need? Am I feeling stressed? Will nature help me with that? Um, and I think it's something that for a lot of people that didn't grow up near the mountains like you did, where the access was right there, bike right away or a walk away. Um, I wonder if those questions go through, uh, say, people's head that grew up in a very dense urban area. And that access is really tough just because it's a far drive and a lot of traffic. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder that too. And that's a great question. I've, I've often asked myself that because, you know, I've spent the majority of my life in Utah. I've lived a few other places, but, uh, even the other places that I've lived, we had, uh, you know, some access to, 
uh, either bigger tracts of land or we still, you know, like I lived in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota uh, for a while and right there in the Black Hills. So it's same, same type of thing, access to outdoors. We lived in the Cincinnati area and, uh, you know, I picked up kayaking while I was out there because uh, that was the, there was a river close by. But I've wondered at times what what's the thought process that people have when it comes to nature if you grow up in a very urban area. And I've coached a few people that are in that space that might be a little bit resistant to it. But I also have a, a really, I think, unique and interesting perspective because my uh, the partner that I have on my podcast, my co-host, is he grew up in the Bronx. Mm. And so his entire growing up was uh, that concrete jungle space, you know, basically like he, he didn't have a lot of nature around him. And after having lived in New York for the first, I don't know, close to 50 years of his life, I mean, he, he lived in California a little bit. He bounced around a few different places, but he was largely in New York and he moved to Utah. And when he got out here, he just, he didn't understand this idea of going out hiking, but he said, okay, I'm going to play with this nature thing. And so he would just go to a park that was right by his house and he would sit and he would read underneath a tree. And then he would go another day, sit and read in a, under an, another tree. And he said, Steve, I have a love affair with trees. Now I, there's feeling to these trees as I sit here and I read, uh, there's a vibe. And he goes, I've got my favorite tree that I'm dating. I've got this other one. I mean, he just, and then little by little, he started to observe nature in a different way. And I remember getting a, a, a text from him one time where for the very first time in his life, he had gone to Snowbird Ski Resort and ridden the tram to the top. And uh, what is the elevation? About 11,500, something like that, or almost 12,000. And just these exuberant pictures. Here I am in the top of the world. And, you know, he shows this 360 degree uh, view. And I think his experience is a real unique one to show people who might be struggling with either access or uh, questioning, how do I do it? And it might be as simple as just take a book and go sit underneath a tree, uh, grab a sketchbook and go sit. I think there's probably nothing more powerful than even if you're not an artist uh, to take a, a sketchbook and go sit and just draw what you observe because as the longer you sit there, the more things you will observe, the more you'll see the shadow that you didn't initially see, the more you'll observe that uh, that bird has been sitting up in the tree for probably 20 minutes and you didn't see it when you first sat down. Um, and I think that observation is something that we have gotten away from. You know, when we talk about uh, with, with the evolved concept that I try to uh, teach people is, in many ways, we've devolved because we've leaned so heavily on technology. And I'm not a technophobe by any stretch of the imagination. I want the most technologically advanced life that I can live. But I know where that ends. And that ends when I go in nature. Because nature forces me to pause and to observe. And I believe it's in those moments of the observation that we see beauty and happiness in life. You know, my uh, my daughters were over at the house the other day. They're both uh, going to school at the University of Utah, and they stopped by to say hi to mom and dad. And I said, I, I get that school can be stressful, work can be stressful, but don't tie your happiness to the ups and downs of the successes, right? When you get a raise or you get a good grade or or you get a bad one, 
tie the happiness to your observations. If you can pause, and especially pause in nature, because this is something that we've done as a family. We'll go out and I'll have my son or my daughter sit with me and just say, observe. Just get used to observing. You have so much more happiness when you sit and observe. So I think anybody that struggles with the idea of where do I start? What's the access? How do I get going? Go pick a tree, sit underneath it, read, observe, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Do it till it feels a little bit uncomfortable and then do it for five minutes longer. And I think little by little, things start to shift in your soul. Yeah, Steve, I love that story. I love that story. And I actually connected to it very strongly. Um, And I'll tell you a little uh, story about myself and how that experience I'm going to share, how it connects to this story that you just shared. And so I grew up running track and cross country my whole life. I started in elementary Mm -hmm. school, ran a middle school, ran a high school, ran a college, run after college, run as an adult now. Um, and back about, um, probably 2008, um, running finally led me to desiring to try backpacking, never tried backpacking. It's about my late twenties at the time. I never tried backpacking at all. And the very first time I went backpacking, it was like, Whoa, this has been missing from my life. And I just, Mm. it, it brought kind of a little bit of a running aspect to it, but you're walking, uh, but you are sometimes have a heavy pack on. But the nice thing about backpacking was slowing down in nature, actually. You know, if you want to go sit under a tree during a backpacking trip, you typically have time to do that. And my backpacking actually evolved. um, So I started just really loving the sensations of escape and solitude and without any intention, just kind of staring at nature and seeing what I pick up on, not having a goal or an expectation, mm. which then led me to bringing every time I went backpacking, um, a sketchbook. So I would get, oh, very um, cool. yeah, a journal, no lines on it. Um, I just bring a, a, uh, a big ballpoint pen, um, mm. and go sketch, um, the bark of a tree. Um, and you're absolutely right. Like what you talked about, I felt that internally, I felt that psychologically, um, I'm starting to pay attention to all these small details that say, if I was running nearby, I might just run right by that tree and not look at those details. And that's fine too. If that's the experience I want, but gosh, like doing that slowdown in nature, um, and looking at all those details, that's a great way to start that relationship with nature. So like your friend who came from, you know, very urban center, um, didn't have easy access. Maybe that's a great way to start that relationship is to just go do those observations and, and, and start to foster the relationship with nature. Maybe that's a way to look at it is you got to foster yeah. a relationship and you got to yeah. start it from, you know, uh, being an infant and raise it up to an adult relationship. Um, right. but yeah, no, yeah. I'd love that. Yeah. It matures over time. I, I think one of the things I found too in nature, especially as I'm uh, going through and observing is the the contrast between the microcosm and the macrocosm. You know, when you look at, like you're talking about, I love the idea of going out and just sketching some bark. When you're sketching bark, you have to look at this and just say, well, it doesn't matter whether you're, like there, in art, there's no right or wrong. We live in a very binary society. There's right, there's wrong. There's two political sides. There's right, we're, we're constantly pushing ourselves one way or another. When you sit and sketch bark, there is no right way to sketch bark. And so you get away from this dichotomistic thinking, but you're very focused on this microcosm and this microcosm, this very small universe of the bark. 
And as you think about it more, then you realize what the bark is doing. It's protecting the tree. It's it's providing uh, a place for if a bear walks by, for a bear to scratch its back, right? It's doing, it, there's so many things in this microcosm. And then as you step away, you lose the detail of it. You feel the detail because you drew it. But as you step back, then you just see the tree. And then as you step back further, you see the forest. And one of the things that I think you get in nature, the more time you spend in it, is this ability to go deep, but then also pull back and get a different perspective. And I think if we need anything in life, we need perspective, right? If uh, when we get stressed, we're often stressed because there is something in this microcosmic area, this small two-week window, one-month window of our life, one-year window of our life that is, you know, putting pressure on us. But if we step back and look at it in terms of this broader microcosm, well, the life is not that stressful. You know, when we look at it over the course of 70, 80, 90 years that we'll be living it, the, the problem we're dealing with is not that important. And when that we step back further and say, how many people are on this earth? And is our problem really that important? And then in the vast universe, is it really that important? And we just tend to find that once we go from microcosm to macrocosm and go in and out on those two things, we become observant, but then we also get a greater perspective and things tend to stress us out a little bit less. We tend to walk around with a little less stomach acid uh, churning up because we just don't feel the stress of life in a better way. And I think that... Uh, you know, this is a lot of what Zen uh, meditation is about or Zen Buddhists talk about when they just uh, talk about the process and, you know, do the thing, sit in a certain way, do the breath mechanically, and then you will eventually get into a more calm state. Going in nature and doing what you're talking about, you are going into the mechanics of getting into the microcosm, which then as you go out of nature, you're getting into the mechanics of looking at it from a bigger perspective and understanding the microcosm. So it's a beautiful example. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. And uh, it reminded me of two experiences in my life. And one being that when I was running collegiate cross country, my entire team had a bad race. And so we're, we're sitting here, the athletes are sitting at the finish line and they are feeling defeated. They're, they're bummed that they didn't perform well. It was actually a home race. Um, and so everyone's just a little not happy. And our coach comes along and very bluntly um, says, hey, athletes, does anybody in China care how you ran today? <laughs> We're like, that. coach, what, what are you talking about? Question. Yeah, what are you talking about, coach? And then it kind of sinks in. It's like, okay, yeah. we just went from the microcosm out to the macrocosm, kind of get a better grasp on the relativity of this experience. And it turns yeah. out like, yeah. okay, like there's not much to it, but let's let's look at it as a process. We yes, we did have a bad race, but you know, now we're gonna learn from that. And there's things to always learn when things don't go right. Um, if you want to call it, you know, a mistake or a failure, there's always things to learn from it. Secondly, yeah. um, my wife and I have actually discussed kind of trying to put together some mental toolboxes to actually go from the microcosm to the macrocosm. We never actually use the same terminology that you use, but we called it the morbid perspective. And oh, cool. it, it okay. does connect to something that you did mention it pretty much. Um, and the morbid perspective is, 
okay, you're having this stressful day at work. Um, maybe you had, you know, a, an interaction that you felt was unhealthy or inappropriate and you're really stressed about it. You're not sure how to handle it. Or maybe someone um, kind of characterized you as, as a person that you don't think you are and you're stressed out about that. Mm. Well, anyways, the more morbid perspective is to take a pause, think that you're on your deathbed and you're looking back to that moment. And now on your deathbed, is that moment really care? You know, like yeah. you've lived this great life. You got family members that you love. You got friends that you love. You have your work and accomplishments and passionate endeavors that you love. Those major things are probably what are going to be the focus on the deathbed versus this small little interaction at work on a Friday morning type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great perspective. I, and I love how you talk about it in the morbid way. Uh, years ago, I started, you know, talking about, uh, being outside and getting some time out in nature. Um, I had a friend of mine that was, that introduced me to death meditation. And this is something that several Buddhists do where they focus on, uh, death and dying and they meditate on what that looks like. And so, uh, there's a specific process that they go through and, um, then I started to peel the onion layers back a little bit more. I read uh, one of the Dalai Lama's books on uh, death and what Buddhists believe uh, happens with death. And one of the things that I found through meditating on death and looking forward at what does my death look like? What do you know, what's going to happen? What do I really want? If this time is a very finite time. What do I want to focus on? What emotions do I want to carry? What do I want to give attention and energy to? Because at a certain point when I die, all of those things are gone. And it just, it, it shifted something in me to where, as you're talking about this morbid mentality, we live a lot better when we just come to the reality of our own mortality and realize that at some point we're going to die and the thing that's stressing us out today is really kind of silly when you look at it in terms of the bigger, bigger perspective. Now, it's not to say it shouldn't be addressed, but when we feel that, you know, that rush of adrenaline or that rush of uh, whatever is happening inside of us, that, that embarrassment or sadness, um, that emotion can fly away just as quickly as it came. And I, I was talking to a client this morning about it, that, uh, you know, we choose to live one of two ways in life. We choose to either feel our emotions and then follow them, or we choose to feel our emotions and then say, so what? So what am I going to do now? What's my choice? Now, what am I going to do? And feeling emotion just educates us. Feeling sensation educates us. And so if we have that bad day at work, and we put it into this morbid perspective. We can feel the emotion. We can recognize the emotion. We can honor the emotion and then say, well, this is educational. Now what? What am I going to do? What was it about that interaction that bothered me? Did I just feel embarrassed? Did I feel offended? Did I feel like I didn't communicate very well? Or what, what can I do now? And that's where I think pausing, getting in nature, getting some time to ourselves it's just so beneficial to, uh, uh, to that overall mental health piece. Yeah. I, I liked how you talked about with peeling the layers back and looking at, um, those different aspects. Um, it's, 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 it is important to kind of go back and have that different type of perspective on it, take that pause. And I was thinking about, as you're giving your explanation about life being finite and in a, so we have the one vein of life is finite 
and that can apply to the morbid perspective or the morbid perspective can sure. apply to that. And like, Hey, like there's significant things that go on in life, uh, love, family, friends. Um, and then there's things that, you know, are, are, are small. I'm going to take a pause. I'll get back to it when I have a different energy. Um, mm -hmm. and in a different vein, I have actually been, and this is a, definitely a different vein. It's definitely a different vein, different, different psychological vein. I have been stressed out by the finite of life, um, the mm. temporariness mm. of life, um, because what I will do, and I, maybe it actually, I think it does connect to this vein and I'm kind of processing this out loud. Um, but I will, you know, something will not be going right. Or maybe I've been working exhaustively for two to three weeks, seven days a week. And I'm like, man, life is too short to be working like this. Like I need to, you know, I enjoy working. I enjoy producing. I enjoy um, interacting with colleagues, but there's also like a time where I, I start to feel detached from myself. I start to feel detached from my home relationships. Um, yeah. and I start getting frustrated about it. Um, and so when things get really busy, I start to get down on the fact that life is finite, but I think at the same time, realizing that life is finite, there is the aspect of, um, almost like helping manage your emotions and having a little bit higher emotional IQ in a way, because you can take that pause yeah. and be like, Hey, life is finite. Like, I don't need to you know, worry about that at the moment. I'll take a pause from it. Yeah, it really is. A, that can be difficult, uh, especially for people. If, if you are the type, uh, like I am, I am very driven to succeed in whatever I, uh, choose to do. Right. I, um, at times take on too many things because I've got too many ideas, but I want to be successful in whatever I take on. So as I'm crafting a podcast, I want the conversation to be the best podcast that it can be, right? If I'm uh, coaching a client, I want it to be the best coaching situation that it can be. And so it really puts me into uh, a lot of high pressure moments, high pressure type situations. Um, and I think that there's a benefit to that. I think that there's something to be said that there is a finite nature to it. Right. Um, but then at the same time, when we get so lost in that particular moment, we do lose uh, the fact that there are some things that are just infinite. We have no idea how big the universe is. Right. We have no idea uh, how many molecules of oxygen are in uh, the Earth's atmosphere. And how it, it just it seems infinite. Right. And so. Uh, every time I've taken a breath, I'm sure I've gotten oxygen in. Otherwise, I would have passed out. And so we it, it could be an infinite number of oxygen molecules. Uh, the universe could be infinite. We haven't found the end of it yet. And even if we do, did we really? Because if you go into the uh, the the microcosm and you go into, the, you know, the internal universe, have we found that, right? So I think that there is a a good balance between understanding the finite and something that could be infinite. Um, the, the idea of the infinite can be something that will pull us in a certain direction. Whereas I believe that the idea of the finite grounds us. So I think the both are important and I think it's important to just, uh, at times ask yourself, okay, what do I need right now? Uh, I've been focusing hard on this particular area, whether it's a business or, I've been training for a race or whatever it is. I've poured myself into this and I feel a sense of imbalance or I feel a sense of uh, unrest. And so what now? So what and what now? I think those are important questions to ask. Yeah, you um, got me thinking of a documentary that I recently watched called Stutz. 
Oh on. yeah. I, okay. I haven't watched it yet. I, how was it? I, it looks fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think that there's things to take away from it. I think that okay. parts of it get redundant with the information that's delivering, uh, which is fine. Mm. Okay. Um, but I think that it's worth watching. I think okay. that's worth watching. And um, so I have as a person, a great ability to get my, my mind on a loop. Um, and typically mm. I'm, okay. when I'm referencing this loop, it's a, um, a negative loop and I'm just kind of caught up in that microcosm of situation that stressed me out. Now my mind is just looping and I, I did learn a nice, um, tool from Stutz and, and Stutz, they, they, um, inaccurately slash accurately call that mental loop, the devil. Um, okay. And, and interesting. And they're just putting what they're doing by that is just putting a negative connotation. And the reason sure. being is if you can recognize that you're in that negative loop and you can put a negative connotation on it, you have more of a chance of getting out of that negative loop. Mm, fair and enough. Yeah. yeah. And so that negative loop, you're going to be stuck on that. You're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to take action. You're just going to be sitting here chewing on this instead of looking at, you know, the, the glory of life and how awesome life is and how great it is to be alive and the finite action of it. And so there's, you know, again, the morbid uh, perspective with the finiteness, there's also, I can get into this place where I'm like, oh man, like, oh my gosh, my life isn't that. And then at that point, I get into a negative loop and I have to recognize yeah. them in that negative yeah. loop um, and put a negative connotation onto it. And that negative connotation is something that I learned from watching that Stutz podcast or documentary. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, concept. I think I, I've always been a big fan of um, using whatever we have. So if there's, if you get into a negative loop, I don't necessarily think that uh, the ability to get into a negative loop is a bad thing because it can be very telling and very teaching. Um, I, you know, we we grow from negative just as much as we grow from positive, but it's how long do we spend there. Right. Anger is a, a powerful emotion. If you take the label off of it, it just means that you have massive energy flowing through your body. Right. Sadness is more of a depressed energy. It's the, the energy is not heightened. It's not the molecules are not bouncing around uh, with sadness like they are with anger. Um, when we feel a sense of love, the molecules are bouncing around inside of us in a different way. Right. So I think that un- understanding whatever loop it is or whatever emotion that we have, whether they're positively charged or negatively charged and then saying, okay, well, how do I use that? You know, I, um, I, I think I've got a client right now. I was actually just, uh, uh, messaging back and forth with her because she's in a negative loop. She previously has been in great physical shape and, you know, now needs to lose about a hundred pounds has uh, really gone into a negative cycle for several years, reached back out to me, reconnected, said, Hey, been through some challenges. I really need some help. I'm embarrassed. I'm sad. And the last time we talked, I said, how are you feeling? She goes, I'm angry. I'm pissed off. I'm, you know, used a wide variety of words to describe negatively how she felt. And she goes, and then I feel guilty that I feel like that. I said, well, don't feel guilty. Just use it. I mean, those are amazing emotions that all they are, that that's just energy. That's free energy. So go use it, go for a really long walk, <laughs> put, put the anger into the workout, put it to work. If you're feeling depressed, put that energy to work. Depression uh, and depressed energy just means that I can pause and I can reflect. I'm, I'm 
it's slowing down so that I can observe. And that's an amazing energy. If I feel anxious uh, and a sense of anxiety, that just means the molecules are bouncing pretty fast. And so I'm in a heightened state. So the last thing I should do is sit around. I should get up and use that energy to accomplish some things. So I think that there's a being able to recognize and put some sort of label, you know, whether it's the devil, you know, some, some sort of label that is not necessarily judgmental. It's just labeling it to say, okay, this is my time, right? This is, this is, I'm, I'm in this space and I recognize it and I move on. Um, you know, my, it, it reminds me of my wife and I have a label that we use, uh, funny story. When we first got married, I, I had been living with roommates in college, like most people. And one of the things that we used to do is when somebody was using the shower, we would play the prank of, uh, it started out with just sneaking in there and, uh, you know, dumping cold water on whoever was in there. And then over time, cold water turned into food. And then it turned into like one of my buddies who was a fisherman, it turned into his fish heads. And so, I mean, we just kept elevating and elevating these pranks. So then as a stupid young married kid, I thought, oh, this would be funny. I'm going to play a prank on her. Um, and so I poured cold water. Well, I heard nothing in the shower. And I thought I would hear her screaming or what are you doing? And we just have this banter back and forth. And then I pull the curtain back and I get this boom, quick punch to the face. Uh, reactionary, right? I mean, my wife is the, the most nonviolent person that you will ever meet. But it was this reactionary punch to the face. And I just stopped and I started laughing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I, uh, did something here. I created a reaction that, uh, um, obviously I don't understand something. I had to go to work. So I said, uh, sorry, go to work, come back later. We talked about it. Came to find out that she absolutely hates the idea of being cold and cold water is like the worst thing in the world to her. And it's not just the physical sensation of being cold, but the idea that I would pour water on her created this emotional response of why would you take me out of my comfort zone? Mm. And so when we talked through it and we came to the realization of what cold water meant, cold water is now the term that we use for anything that is a no-go zone for us. And so if she does something that stops me in my tracks, or if I do something that uh, offends or is critical or something like that. We just look at each other and we say, we will use the label. We'll say, well, that's a cold water. And so then that becomes this communicative tool in our toolbox that we utilize now to just say, all right, we've, we've got to, it's cold water. You have to understand that uh, we, we're going to love and respect each other. And so we're not going to go there. So let's come back to love, empathy, and compassion, and I will not do that thing again. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of labeling without judgment, right? Cold water to us or the devil, like Stutz is talking about, as long as it's not something that brings guilt and shame, then I'm a huge, huge fan of that. Yeah, and, and that cold water connects so well to a strong experience that you both had. Um, and I, have, um, I had a colleague that told me that the, the no the no-go zone for him and his wife when they were approaching it, the, the word they used, they had to put comedy on it to keep them out of the zone. So the word they used is sausage. Nice. So, you nice. know, if, they're, if things are getting <laughs> heated that. or things are getting uncomfortable, sausage. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then it's like, whoa, that creates a pause suddenly. We kind of get a laugh out of yeah. it. Um, but 
going back to the end of your comment there with shame and guilt, that's something that I also think a lot about, and it's also examined a lot on my podcast. And um, what is examined is how social signaling can cause shame and guilt. And especially at a younger age with adolescence, when you're, 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 you're getting exposed to it for the first time, you may not have yeah. the comfortability yeah. yet of your mind, your body, and how to cope with that in a healthy way versus unhealthy ways. There's a lot of unhealthy ways, there's a lot of healthy ways. That's something that's examined a lot. And I was actually wondering, um, you know, kind of how you, um, if that comes up with your coaching or whatnot, with, you know, helping people get away from shame and guilt, but actually doing this for themselves if they want to do it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes up a lot. Um, I think we are, I, I, I guess my, my perspective, and I'm not sure if I'm right on this or not, but my perspective is that we all feel a sense of shame and guilt, uh, from time to time. Some people lean into it more than others. And I think a sense of shame and guilt, um, signal wise is an evolutionary process that happens inside of our body to tell us that we're not fitting in to the tribe. We're not fitting in socially the way that we want to. Uh, we are ashamed because maybe we didn't perform at the level we wanted to perform at. Right. I remember, as you mentioned before, uh, the uh, track meet where your team didn't perform. I remember a basketball game where we, it felt like somebody had put a, a cap on the hoop and we just, we got blown away. We couldn't, I, I mean, I missed like three layups uh, in that game and everybody else was missing shots left and right. There was a sense of shame there, right? We didn't perform. And so when I think shame is there, when we feel a lack of performance, guilt is there um, when we feel like we should have done something. And so I think it's, it's a very common thing. And I think it probably is just an evolutionary thing that's happened as we have become you know, I mean, the human animal is a tribal animal. We, we are designed to be around other people. Um, solitary things are great for a period of time, but um, we, we live in packs. We should live in packs. We support each other, right? That's the economy of life, uh, the ecology of life. So shame and guilt for a lot of people, though, become something that is just the natural response that they have leaned into. And so it becomes easy to go into that. And it's a hard one to break initially, but once you develop the habit, just like anything else, you're developing a new neurological pattern when you break away from shame and guilt consistently uh, and move into a place of self-acceptance self and love. And the first thing that I talk to people about is if they're feeling a sense of shame and guilt is let's, let's pause for a second and let's look at it from a different angle. I believe all reality is negotiable. And so when you look at something and you say, oh, I'm so ashamed and I'm so guilty, you know, I, and I, oh, I'm such an idiot or whatever the verbiage is. I say, well, okay, you can go that route, but let's just account for what actually happened. What did you do? Well, I did this. Okay. What did you want to do? this. Well, why did you not do that? Well, because of these things. Okay. So should we throw you in jail? Should you be, uh, beheaded? Like, and I go to the like most extreme weird thing that they could think of. Well, no, that's stupid. No. So then what's the problem in order to fix what you're talking about? What do you need to do? Why do you just need to go back and do that one thing? Okay. So be like an accountant, just account for what you did. There's Numbers in this column, there's numbers in that column. So you either did it or you didn't. 
If you want to get really good at life, you've become great at accounting for things rather than using shame and guilt to push you backwards. And so the first thing is to pause and start to account for your life. The second thing is to stop shooting on yourself. And I use that phraseology because it sounds like something else, right? But it, it, it feels like that too. When I say, I should do this, I should do that, I should, well, all I'm doing is I'm putting expectations out there for myself into the ether of the universe that will come back karmically and make me feel guilty and shameful when I don't do those things. And so instead of shooting on ourselves, we shift from saying, I should do this to I'm going to do that. I choose to do that or I prefer to do that. And we talk about preference or choice. Preference and choice is just, again, there's there's very few things in life that I would consider just all good or all bad, right? Um, yes, you shouldn't steal from somebody. You shouldn't kill another person. You shouldn't go sleep with your best friend's wife. Like there's some goods, bads in there, but most things in life are relatively neutral. If you choose to go get a, uh, a coffee versus a tea, that, that one isn't good, one isn't bad, right? And so if your preference is to go get a tea, then get the tea. You choose to get the tea. If your preference is to drink the coffee, then choose to get the coffee because your preference is the coffee. And understand that the majority of life and its happiness will be tied to what your choices are rather than shooting on yourself. So I think once you start to break the pattern of shooting and you're starting to hold yourself accountable, you're changing the way that you're responding to life. And so life now becomes something that you're very conscious of. Life becomes something that you're very intentional about. And you are making these conscious choices and you're expressing preferences that have nothing to do with guilt or shame tied to them. Now, one of the biggest challenges, though, is our programming that we had when we were very young. And so, you know, like myself, I grew up in a very demanding religion. I'm no longer a part of that religion, but I grew up in a very demanding religion. And in that religion, there was a lot of shameful conversation, um, shameful conversation about uh, the way you should live and what you should think and what you should believe and what you should eat and what you shouldn't wear. And that becomes a very difficult thing to break until you start to lean into the accountability and you understand that everything in life, regardless of a moral or a spiritual belief, still is a conscious choice. So even if I have a moral idea, I'm still choosing to live that idea. I'm still choosing to not live that idea. But whichever it is, if it aligns with my integrity or with my beliefs, then I am integrous with my beliefs. Um, I, that helps significantly with getting rid of shame. And then the last thing I would add is there's really two, at least what I've seen, and from my perspective, the two most powerful forces in the entire universe, number one is love and number two is compound interest. And the number one is that if I want to evolve into a more uh, vibrant human being, and I do it from a state of love. I do it from a state of compassion. I would never walk up to another human being and if they tripped on the sidewalk or they flubbed a word in a speech or they, you know, didn't carry the one on their calculations on their PL, I would never berate them, right? It just, it, it's not in my, my nature to do so. But yet we do that to ourselves. 
And the only way we grow and evolve is by showing compassion and love along the way. And so I do what I do because I love it. I make this choice to live healthy because I love myself and I love the feeling. And when you start to love something, then it makes life a lot easier. Now, compounding interest, if anybody has never done this before, I would say Google compound interest calculator, pull it up and just say, I'm going to start putting $100 or $1,000 into a retirement account over 40 years and it's going to compound at 8%, 10% interest, right? And do this exercise and then click on the graph. And what you'll see when you click on the graph, you'll see the power of compounding. What happens is you'll see this nice, consistent line as you invest into an account. And then all of a sudden it J curves and it just skyrockets. Well, the power of compounding is not just with money, but it's with the things that we do consistently in life. If you consistently should on yourself, if you consistently shame yourself, the power of compounding paralyzes you. If you start to move into a state of conscious choice and love on a regular basis, the power of compounding is amazing. But just like that J-curve, you may feel incremental improvements for a year, two years. And then all of a sudden you have this awakening. All of a sudden you have this point where things shift in your soul and you say, wow, I'm different. And that's where the power of compounding comes in. So that's the standard process that I take people through. And obviously it's more complex as we, you know, and nuanced as we, as we coach through it. But those are the basic frameworks that I, that uh, I think help people to get away from shame and guilt. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. And I can see how expectations uh, and expectations being put out there, but you actually don't really prefer to go for those. And right. you're, you know, right. it, it can really, really mess you up, but I really love the love part of it. And mm. love and kindness are two things that are, are, are absolutely powerful. And say I'm having a hard time with an individual somewhere, someplace. Yeah. It is so easy to be like, I don't like that person. Screw that person. Mm -hmm. It is so yep. easy to do, but it, there's no compounding interest on that. Um, it's actually going to probably end up hurting me more. Um, yeah, you know, sure. anytime I'm around that person, I'm not going to enjoy myself or anytime I see that person or anytime that person shows up in my social media feed, I'm going to be like, eh, and I'm going to be frustrated and that tense guy. inside. And yeah. so I, I try to practice, um, trajecting my love onto that person that I may be in a disagreement with, that I may not enjoy their presence. I need to get my love to them and I will mentally envision myself sending a like almost like flood of love in a, a water tunnel to this person. Um, yeah. and it's, it, it's honestly just a psychological toolbox. Uh, it's yep. another psychological yep. tool, but approaching things with love and kindness, um, what a boost towards personal happiness and that love and kindness. I gave an example of a social interaction, um, but also love and kindness for yourself, um, self-compassion yeah. for yourself, yeah. being vulnerable with yourself. Um, working out that critical voice that sometimes is negative on the inside. I mean, I think, as you mentioned earlier, we all have a critical voice that can be negative and learn Absolutely. to cope with that. But gosh, self-compassion, self-vulnerability are two things that are really big. And I know vulnerability has been a hot topic of recent, something that I've been coming um, across a lot. And I know Dr. Mm -hmm. Brene Brown has put a lot of study into that and shown how it's such a great cohesive for social interaction. But 
taking a step further, vulnerability with self. Um, that's yeah. something that uh, really helps my happiness, really helps my functioning, opposed to just being negative with myself. So if I'm having a bad run or something, be like, oh, Brian, you suck. Like, that's not going to get mm -hmm. me anywhere. Like, there's there could be vulnerability, there could be grace. Like, hey, like, why are you having a bad run today? Oh, you know, like, maybe I didn't get a good night's sleep or something, or maybe I'm stressed from something at work yesterday. And like, okay, well, yeah, makes sense you're not getting a good run. In. Like, there's other things going on. Like, it's never just as simple as that. And, taking that whole holistic look or peeling the onion back. It's, it's so important. And Steve, I, I really love what you have discussed today. I really love that um, all this ties into empowering people. And I think yeah. that that is something that um, really inspires me to listen more about your podcast. You brought a lot of great quality content to this conversation. This is all fantastic to hear. Um, wow. I was really impressed. So this has been a cool conversation. Well, thank you. I, I, I love great conversations and you're a great conversationalist. I think I told you that in the first uh, time we talked that I listened to your podcast and I, you know, there's, there's a lot of podcasts out there and a lot of people talking and sometimes it's just people that are talking heads. And then sometimes it's people that are asking questions. I prefer great conversation. I prefer the interchange and the back and forth. And so, um, you know, I, as you mentioned with being a newer podcast, um, I, I listened to yours and I thought I, when you said, well, we're a newer podcast, we're not that big. And I said, I, I don't care. Like, I just love having great conversations. Even if we weren't doing a podcast, I would want to sit and have this conversation. I think that when we first talked, I don't know how long we talked for, but um, I think it went longer than what we had planned because of the conversation. So I can't tell you, thank you enough. I mean, uh, great conversation is one of the, uh, uh, the great joys of my life. And so I uh, appreciate, you know, what you're doing here the message that you're putting out and the fact that you are using your conversation skills that you've developed and your just openness to life and to love and to helping other people uh, on this podcast. So it really is an honor to, uh, uh, to share the space with you. Yeah. Well, Steve, I'm, I'm so glad that you reached out to me to collaborate. And, um, I really appreciate all those compliments and, you know, like you brought a lot of love and kind to this space today. And I think that's something that is part of a, a major foundational pillar of good conversation. Um, but, yeah. you know, bringing some knowledge, bringing your experiences in, bringing some vulnerability to talk about your past experiences, whether they were challenging or not. Um, you know, that's all stuff that goes into the conversation. The art of conversation is, it's, it's quite an art and it's something that um, I feel challenged by a lot of the times. So I appreciate the compliment mm. to the truth. No, no, you're, you're, you've got, you got some skills. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Hey, for the listeners out there, I want to uh, recommend checking out the Evolve podcast. Um, Steve Cutler here does a wonderful, wonderful job with it. He's got over 20 years of experience on his topics, um, and he does a great holistic approach with his clients and athletes. And it's something that uh, I definitely recommend looking into, listening to his podcast. There's all types of great topics on there. And so um, when you get the time, check out the Evolve podcast. And I wanted to just re-mention your mission statement, which is to empower people to disrupt their lives, to evolve their body, evolve their mind, evolve their soul, and evolve their tribe. And although those are different pillars, they're so interconnected. And I think we saw that today in our conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Evolve Podcast. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you haven't done so, please give us a rating. As an independent podcast, it really helps us get more reach.
This podcast is part of our mission to help millions of people evolve into the best versions of themselves. Please check out our coaching services at evolve-cast.com or pick up some of our Evolve merch. Until next time, keep evolving.